Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up in this week's episode, I kind of thought I had done deep fakes to death. We talked about it, all the dangers of it, you know, the overturning of political systems, pornography and so on. But it turns out that this technology that can transform someone's face into a different face or make it look like someone is saying something other than what they've originally said, it turns out there are real positive use cases for this sort of technology. And we also may be overestimating its power to change our understanding of what's really happened. We're going to be speaking to a brilliant researcher from University College Cork, Dr. Gillian Murphy, about that in a few minutes' time. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. But before all that, we'll go into the week's science news and have a look at some of the breaking stories this week. We're joined by Dr. Lara Dungan and DCU's School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara has to do with MRIs and psychosis. This is a fascinating one and I love this because I think it just demonstrates science working really, really well. So these are researchers over in the University of Oxford and um, what they did was they looked at 1,600 people, over 1,600 people who had a first episode of psychosis. So psychosis is something that people will probably have seen in movies and most people won't have seen in real life. It often comes from diseases such as schizophrenia or drug-related psychosis or sometimes people can have even postpartum psychosis. And it's essentially where people have a fixed false belief. They are not able to be completely in touch with reality. But sometimes this can come from a non-psychiatric cause. So it can be something like an infection, encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain or a brain tumor. And in the UK and often in Ireland, we use a set of guidelines called the NICE guidelines, N-I-C-E. They're not particularly nice, but it's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. And it's the guidelines that generally dictate how we treat patients in most circumstances. And at the moment, these guidelines don't say that you should do an MRI brain scan on patients for their first presentation of psychosis because it's not known how important this is. And this study has demonstrated that in one in 18 of these people, so 6%, had something else, another potentially treatable cause, whether it's a brain tumor, like I said, or inflammation or infection, something that's totally different from a primary psychiatric presentation. And their argument now is that we need to just outright change the guidelines, bring in MRI brains as part of a compulsory assessment of patients presenting with a first psychosis, and hopefully catch these diseases in the small window. And it's often a very small window where they're still treatable. Now I know from here, our psychiatrists would be very unlikely to accept someone who hadn't had at least a CT brain. So it is something that in general practice does usually happen, but it's not actually in the guidelines. So sometimes it can be hard. And there's people who wait months sometimes before finding out that they have a brain tumor. So it's crazy. And hopefully the guidelines will change now to reflect this new practice. But um, I thought MRI machines were like gold dust and 6% just doesn't seem like an enormous amount to screen everybody. We've talked about screening problems and how overall they can reduce efficiency if they're not balanced right. Is this justifiable? Because that sounds like a lot of MRIs. 
Agreed, absolutely. But I think it is justifiable. 6% sounds like a small number when you're talking about figures, but that is one in 18 of every human being who presents with a new psychosis. And oh, don't make me out to be a monster. I'm, just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm talking about the context of, uh, of oh, you know, the cost efficiency of, of a hospital and, and other people who need MRIs. I mean, if MRIs absolutely. were free and there was a million MRIs in, in every hospital, absolutely. But um, Of course. But we're not talking about screening the population as a whole. We're talking about screening the small percentage of the population that appear with a first psychosis. Now, I don't have figures on how many people that would be a year, but it's not going to be in the thousands. It's going to right. be less than okay. that in Ireland. And I think it is definitely justifiable. If you can find a brain tumour and treat a person, then an MRI is a very small cost. What would cause psychosis that isn't one of the underlying psychiatric conditions we might be familiar with? So the main causes of a first presentation of psychosis that are not psychiatric, so for instance, are not based on schizophrenia or drug-related, those kind of different things that cause psychosis, are, for instance, a stroke. Um, so people can present with a stroke of a specific area of their brain and it can look like a psychosis and it could be right. treatable. A brain tumor, an infection, a, an inflammation. There's loads of different things that some are easily treatable, some are not. Autoimmune diseases, this is one of the things we actually treat in immunology. So there's a, a huge amount of things and some of them are eminently treatable. Some of them, of course, are not. But if you don't find out early, probably none of them are treatable. Right. Very interesting. Okay. Um, Susan, our second story has to do with exercise. Yeah, this work was published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it looks at when people should be doing their exercise to gain most benefit. Now, if you're not listening for long today, the short answer is it doesn't matter when you do it, just do it. But um, we'll go into the, exactly the science of it and, and what they looked at. So as long as you do something, you're fine. But the study was led by researchers in the Massachusetts General Hospital and MIT Harvard Broad Institute, and they looked at to see if cramming all your exercise into a day or two of the week, usually the weekend, made a difference to the overall um, health outcomes um, compared to people who spread out their exercise over the week. So we know that public health guidelines recommend that people do at least 150 minutes of moderate exercise every week. So for example, that's going for a brisk walk and um, mowing the lawn also gives you um, the right amount of cardiovascular um, activity there or riding a bike or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. So this is where it's harder for you to talk. You're running, you're playing football or well, you're swimming. It's harder to talk for other reasons, but we're talking about a much, in, much uh, greater amount of cardiovascular um, activity. So the team analyzed the medical records for nearly 90,000 people enrolled in what's called the UK Biobank Project where the participants wore basically smartwatches, just very minimum, but they monitored activity for the week. And they found that one third of people didn't hit the targets, um, that 42% were active, what are, the, what are called weekend warriors. So they fit all of their 150 moderate or their 75 vigorous minutes into one or two days. And that nearly a quarter of people spread their activity out over the week. Um, but the most popular choice was to just try and cram as much in as you can on those two days at the weekend that we've, I'm sure, we're all familiar with. And they found that both the weekend warriors and those who spread it out um, had the same level of risk or lower risk of cardiovascular health risks um, compared to those who were inactive. So for example, the, heart, the risk of heart attacks was 27% lower for the weekend warriors and 35% lower for those who spread it out. The risk of heart failure was between 36 and 38% lower for both compared to the inactive people and also the risk of atrial fibrillation and stroke were also lower. So it just doesn't seem to matter when you do it. Just good but to be doing something. Good. 
Yeah, because yeah, I, I I play football I twice so. a week, um, and I I kind of think is that enough in terms of the exercise that I should be doing? But that's 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 pretty good in terms of protecting me from heart attacks. I, I don't know. My news. husband plays football with you, Johnny, and I'm not sure he thinks you put in enough effort. A little bit more is expected. <laughs> I'm going to get that chain if he comes home in a in a a, a cast next time. I'll know who to blame. Uh, all right, our third story, Lara, has to do with vegans and a healthy diet. You know, this was actually a wake up call for me. I don't eat meat um, for for climate reasons, um, because it is very important to me, but. The knowledge that we may be, we as in those who don't eat meat-based diets or or vegans especially because they don't have the eggs or milk that I would have, could be lacking in vitamin B12 is something that I'd kind of forgotten about. And actually, you know, I'm a medical doctor and a reasonably educated person. And if I can forget, you can assume that a lot of people are going to be able to forget this. And um, Vitamin B12 is extremely important. A deficiency of it can cause severe and irreversible nerve damage. You can have, you know, vague symptoms, tiredness, weakness, fainting, dizziness. Being annoying. Being annoying, I don't think counts. But I'm clearly not deficient at the moment. And um, get mouth ulcers, balance problems. And eventually, actually, this can result in death if you're if you're significantly deficient. Um, and what this new study from Cambridge University has found is that the, the reason that um, we are deficient is because the bacteria inside the guts of animals are what produce the B12. And then it ends up in the meat, the milk, the eggs, and that's how we get it. But bacteria are essentially the producers. Bacteria in water also produce B12 and algae in water gather all this B12 inside them and they hoard it all. So this new research research is suggesting that if we used an algae supplement, specifically the algae that that, um, would accumulate the correct type of B12, we can start putting this into vegan and vegetarian food as a supplement. Now, it is a supplement in certain things like breakfast cereals. So people who eat breakfast cereals that are fortified with vitamin B12 are probably fine. But there is no natural plant source of this and we need it. It is completely compulsory for life. So it's something, A, to remember if you're vegan or vegetarian to think about where you're getting your vitamin B12. But also this would be really great um, research if they could get this algae because it's essentially a natural source rather than kind of chemicals that you might get in a vitamin tablet and put this into foods to fortify them. It could actually help an awful lot of people. There's about a million vegans in the UK at the moment, about 1.5% of the population. Wow. And a much, yeah, a much larger percentage of vegetarians, again, on top of that. So it is something that's really important, A, if you're vegan or vegetarian, to think about where you're getting your B12, which is something I'm going off to think about right now. But B, hopefully it can start to be fortified into vegetable and vegan foods. Yeah, you were talking about um, foods that are fortified with vitamin B12. And, and I, the, I immediately thought of cornflakes, but of course, vegans don't eat cornflakes. Well, they could eat cornflakes with no... Cow's milk. water. No, oat milk or coconut milk or one of the many milk alternatives that we should be thinking about. But some are not climate friendly, so we also need to think about that. <laughs> There's always a caveat. The, it's never easy, is it? Um, <laughs> I've forgotten about oat and almond milk. Um, something I haven't, I haven't really tried. Um, because you can't really milk an oat, can you? Uh, it's it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It you need strong hands. <laughs> um, that, that said. Uh, I, th- I think it is really um, it's interesting that they've they've come up with a solution for this. So that means that the the vegan uh, diet plus this algae would actually give uh, a, a very healthy long term diet that they do not need to supplement with proteins from animals at all. As a general rule, yes. I mean, there's other things that vegan diets are lower in, like iron, for instance. But yes, as a general rule, B12 is the big, big, big one. Okay, great. Um, All right. Our final story, Susan, has to do with the sound of silence. 
Yes. So this work came from Johns Hopkins University and um, it's determined that we can, or they think that we can actually, in fact, hear silence. Now, this sounds a bit strange. So in order to explain it, it can help to think about an optical illusion first. So if you think about a picture that when you look at them, that you're tricked into thinking, say, that one line is longer than another because of what's around it, for example. So there are also auditory illusions and they use these basically to explain that um, basically we can hear silence. So one example of an auditory illusion is where you have have two short consecutive beeps um, and then one beep that is the same length as those two added together. But when you hear it, you think that that's actually longer. And they've done this with silence. And we have a clip you might want to explain, Jonathan, what the listeners are going to hear now, because it's really quite good. You can do it at home. Okay, so you're going to hear two bits of silence and then going to play a second clip of just one bit of silence and I want you to tell me which one is longer So which do you think is longer? So I I definitely think the second bit of silence there is longer, Susan, even though you've told me that it's not. Um, But how on earth does this tell us anything about whether or not we perceive or or we hear silence? So I suppose what they're trying to show in this is, again, I also did this at home and I said, yeah, that second one is longer. And actually, they're not longer. So the two short ones added together are the same length as the one that's you know, on its own. And it's called this um, one is more illusion. And this is this one is one silence is more illusion. So what they're trying to figure out is that we think we think this this phenomenon can be seen with beeps. And now that they think that this can be seen with silence, they're wondering, how does our brain recognize that? Is it just the absence of the sound or are we actually listening out to how do why do we perceive something as being longer than it is if we're not actually hearing anything at all? That's the really unusual thing. It's quite, I mean, not surprising. Because, it, because it's the lack of silence, the lack of noise for longer. But it's not longer. We think it is. Why do we think it is longer? They're the exact same. I mean, but our brain is perceiving something longer. So like we're hearing it past the point of when it should come back. But it, yeah. but it isn't. It's exactly the same. I mean, so the team is full, uh, is, is combination of philosophers and psychiatrists. So I guess it, it sort of bridges that what what does silence even mean? You know, is anything ever really silent? <laughs> I, I'm guessing. So it's an interesting experiment. And I certainly like, I certainly definitely thought there was something different between the two sounds. So I suppose watch the space, maybe if this is an area of interest for you. <laughs> yeah, set up it a may or may not alert <laughs> on, the, on the study of silence. Yeah, okay. I don't know. What, what do you think of that? You can text us 53106 for 30 cents. I hope they're not spending an enormous amount of money on this research, uh, <laughs> but, but fine. Uh, Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and Dr. Lara Dungan, thanks very much. I don't know if you've watched The Mandalorian. I, I grew up with Star Wars, so it was must viewing for me. And um, there's a scene in it in which Luke Skywalker suddenly appears in the narrative. And if you're a big fan, it's a big deal. And the amazing thing about that scene is that it is not 
Luke Skywalker as he is now. Mark Hamill is quite old at this stage. Um, but it is Luke Skywalker as a young man, as he is in the original trilogy. And this was done by use of a deep fake technology, which is interesting because when we think of deep fakes, we, we associate all of the negatives of deep fakes, but there are also potential great benefits to it too. A researcher in, in this area is Dr. Gillian Murphy. She's a lecturer in cognitive psychology, the School of Applied Psychology in UCC. Uh, and she supervises projects on memory distortion, fake news and deep fakes. Uh, she joins me now. So, uh, Gillian, for those who aren't familiar with The Mandalorian, uh, just remind people what exactly we're talking about when we talk about deepfakes. Yeah. Um, so deepfakes are basically a form of doctored media that you can create using machine learning, using artificial intelligence. So I suppose most people would be familiar with the idea of Photoshop. I could uh, take a, a picture of you, Jonathan, standing, you know, holding up a sign, uh, protesting climate change or something, and I could change it to say, it said climate change is real, and now I Photoshop it and it says climate change is a hoax. So everyone's aware of that kind of doctored media. Deepfakes are, are different and, and more um, realistic, I suppose, more complicated. So what you would do if you wanted to make a deepfake, and, and you can, <laughs> there are apps and things like this that you can download. Um, the difference with a deepfake is you use machine learning to build, you, you would build a library of images. So let's say I have a video of someone you know, a real right-wing person ranting about how climate change isn't real. And I say, I want to make it look like Jonathan is the one saying all of this. So I take that video, I then amass a little library of pictures of you uh, from different angles, different kind of uh, angles on your face, different expressions on your face. And I use that kind of machine learning to, to train the program so that it, it knows what your face should look like if you were doing the same thing as the video. And it then can superimpose your face so that what we're left with is this highly convincing, highly realistic video where it looks like you are the person in that video. Or, you know, there are other types of deep fakes too, where I could take a video of you saying something and then I could just use deep fake technology to alter what's going on around your mouth and, and to change your speech so that, you know, what was a real video of you saying X now becomes a video of you saying Y. Um, so really the, the kind of difference between, like, I suppose when you think of what, what I'm describing here, it's not that different to kind of Hollywood special effects. Like this has been around for a while, but the difference with deep fakes is that you can do it on a fairly standard computer. The software is free. It's open source. It's not, um, it's not going to cost you that much money or expertise or special equipment. So deepfakes have been around since kind of 2017 and they're kind of only getting better and, and more accessible. When I first heard about this, I was terrified about, you know, this idea of truth. What What is a real thing and what is not a real thing and, and where it would take us. And in those early days, even though the, the mapping was a bit um, sketchy, I could see the potential. We're now at this stage where you can make a really, really convincing video. And if it's short enough or if the match is close enough, it's very difficult to tell with the naked eye, whether or not someone is saying what they're saying. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you say it's difficult to tell with the naked eye. It, it's also difficult to tell from a technical perspective. And and some people oh, really? regard it almost as a bit of an arms race now, because when, when deepfakes first came out, there were kind of characteristics of deepfakes that made them easy to spot. Things like the way people blinked, like the rate of blinking, it, it was, was specific and you could detect it. 
And obviously then what happens is that people who are creating this technology, they improve it. And so there's, as well as a, a sort of human inability to, to detect the difference, you know, there is a growing difficulty technologically as well to really spot the difference without, you know, very specialized teams being able to look at it. I had thought of this as just purely negative and I hadn't realized the potential, partially because I think, you know, bringing back movie stars is a you know, it's it's a very limited um, uh, uh, implement mm. uh, and, and use case for it. And to be honest, I'm not, I, I feel like I feel knowing if someone's dead, knowing they're dead or, or knowing that they're very old and then seeing in a film, the, the illusion is broken a bit for me because my brain goes, wait a second, how do they do that? Um, so I, I, as, a, as, a, as a lover of film, I, I thought, well, there's no real use for this. But then I saw some footage of actors where they were speaking in languages they didn't speak. And it seemed like they were speaking them fluently. Can you explain what's going on there? Because that to me seems like a fantastic use of this technology. Yeah, so like there are positives of deepfakes and and really they don't get enough attention. Obviously, we we tend to focus on on the threats and the harms. Uh, One of the real positives is around translation across languages, and that could be useful for marketing for entertainment for education it could be really great to be able to to make educational materials for the classroom so there's a a famous example where david beckham did a campaign against malaria and they they translated it into 14 different languages and it really looks and sounds like he is speaking those languages malaria isn't just any disease it's the deadliest disease there's ever been se dice que ha matado más de la mitad de la población que ha existido and so rather than, you know, maybe people in some countries having to see a dubbed version or a subtitled version, deepfakes are quite a, an exciting solution to that. And as I say, you know, it, it's cheap, it's quite simple. And there are there's other kind of really exciting options for things we can do with deepfakes. So there's one a very famous documentary about um, some LGBT activists in Russia. And obviously it'd be very difficult for them to speak out on camera. And what we would have done in the past is maybe have that, you know, a classic um, figurine on screen where you just see a dark silhouette of someone and you can't see their face. And so instead of that, they just use deepfakes to change these people's faces. And then you can really see them. You can see, you know, you can hear their expressions. You can see their, 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 their facial gestures and everything, but you're not risking showing their identity. So there's some really exciting things you can do with deepfakes that maybe aren't top of mind when we think of them. And pre-deepfake technology, the solution would have been to show a silhouette of these people where you couldn't see them, you might distort their voice, they sound like machines, um, and that would be the best way to protect their identity. But deepfakes are a really exciting solution to that, whereby instead of of, of using that way of disguising them, you create a deepfake of them and you can show them on screen. And, you know, it allows them to really speak on camera and for you to see their facial expressions and really convey their experiences in a way that's much richer than just kind of shrouding them in darkness like you might have done. I mean, the the, the potential for those two ideas is enormous. So um, my kids, uh, you know, they, they love films whenever it's in a foreign language, if it's dubbed or if it's, you know, subtitles, they switch off. Yeah. And there's such a wealth of amazing foreign film that people just say, nah. I mean, if you think of all of the, you know, all of the work from from one country alone, say Spanish or French cinema, if you could translate all of those into English using that actor's voice, but in in English where the mouth looks like it's saying those words, I mean, that is extraordinary potential. 
And then, and then you know, the idea to give people anonymity, but have that content to be emotionally engaging, because as you say, like, you know, having someone hidden in the shadows is is much less powerful than being able to look into their admittedly deep fake eyes, but, but, <laughs> but really feel the emotions with them. That's, that is really, really incredible. But as we said at the top, there, there is a negative side to this, right? Because most deep fakes are not these really clever and useful and beneficial use cases. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's exciting to talk about the positives of deep fakes. And I think it can be really refreshing to, to think about the, the positive applications because sometimes we can be a bit doom and gloom, but we do have to balance that with, with reality. And, and the reality is that something around 95% of deep fakes on the internet are pornography. And, and you know, almost all of those are non-consensual. They're, they're made without the consent of the people in it. And almost all of them feature women. It's it's a real, real problem. And like there, there, there's been some efforts, like the UK, I think maybe uh, last winter passed a law to say that it's now illegal to create um, a deep fake like that of someone. There there are some efforts to, try right. to catch up, but... I mean, the, the quantity of it, it's, it's actually difficult to express <laughs> the scale of the problem. And uh, I know we're, we're going to chat it here about a, a paper that we did recently looking at deepfake movies and, and movie remakes. And uh, we, we struggled to actually make, to, to, to gather the materials we needed for that project. You can, you can Google male actors' right. names. I could, I could type in, you know, Anthony Hopkins deepfake and I'll see really clever ones showing him in harry potter or something like that it's fun it's playful it's educational you just cannot do the same with women on the internet which is a, a damning yeah. and a very kind of telling uh, issue kind of culturally i suppose that we have for sure um the the work that you did also is is, is sort of worrying in in relation to that because the the research that you were looking at showed that if people saw deep fakes, they memorized them or they remembered them as being real. So if we see a woman, uh, a female actress in a porn film that she wasn't actually in, our memories sometimes have difficulty sort of sorting out real from unreal. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So so I'm a, a memory researcher, I suppose, by trade and uh, deep fakes are just a small part of what I do. And so you know, we have decades of research in psychology that shows us how easily we can distort memory. And it's a it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around because obviously it's not something that we're aware of. And sometimes it's, it's not something that we believe to be happening. But, you know, tons of studies to show the way I ask an eyewitness a question will change their memory of, of what they've seen. Um, we've done studies where we've just interviewed people for a bit and we've managed to, you know, plant entire memories of childhood events that never happened to people like there are things like that you can do and so we do know that sometimes we'll we'll remember parts of an event or something like an image from an event but we won't remember all the detail around it so we might remember yeah I remember something about that actress doing porn I feel like I've seen something related to that and you might forget all the other detail uh, which is is the concern when it comes to deep fakes and misinformation so tell me about the study how did you go about doing it and what, what did you find yeah so we were interested in looking at um I suppose one of the more fun uses, like like you said, there are fun and playful and enjoyable uses of deepfakes. And one of those really on the internet is average internet users for fun sometimes take um, little clips of, of films and they recast them. So I might say, 
you know, what would Titanic have been like if Brad Pitt played the lead rather than Leonardo DiCaprio? And I'm, I can use deepfake technology to, to quite easily make a little 15 or 20 second clip. Um, and there are various Reddit, you know, sites and, and YouTube um, channels that are dedicated to this kind of fun um, recasting is kind of what we would call it. And so as a memory researcher, I was interested to know if people view those, will that actually distort their memory of, of whether or not those remakes were real? And so we ran a little experiment. I did this with some students where people thought they were completing a, a survey looking at how they felt about remakes of films. And they saw little, they either saw a text description of a film or they saw it as a little uh, video clip. And some of them were real remakes. So things like Aladdin, Tomb Raider, like, you know, it's common enough that studios will remake a film with a new cast. So some of them were real, yeah. but some of them were deep fakes. So we had Will Smith starring in The Matrix. It was a little 10 second clip of him replacing Keanu Reeves and him as the main character in, in The Matrix. And we presented them all as if they were real. And we asked people, you know, have you seen this before? Where did you see it? Was it better than the original? Those kind of questions. And what we were interested in knowing was whether if people saw a deep fake, would it distort their memory more than if they just read about this fictitious movie? So we were interested to see, you know, how much more powerful might deep fakes be than just simple text in terms of, of distorting memory. So what we found kind of somewhat surprisingly was that there actually was no difference between text and, and deepfakes. So that's not to say that the deepfakes huh. didn't work. <laughs> they both worked very well. So like, as I say, in line with decades of memory research, we found that people very readily formed false memories. About 40, 45% of people said, oh yeah, I remember that. I saw that in the cinema with my wife and I really enjoyed it <laughs> about these movies yeah. that were- Even though Will Smith played Neo in The Matrix. Yeah, like, absolutely. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, and said, oh, I really enjoyed that part and I thought he did a really good job and people constructed these memories of, of kind of things that didn't happen, which is, is very normal and very common, doesn't indicate there's anything wrong with any of them. Um, but we found that, you know, people were able to do that, whether they saw a text description or whether they saw a deep fake. So it's sort of, I suppose, underscores that we have all these fears that, that deep fakes will be so much more powerful as a, as a vehicle yeah. for misinformation, but they might not be. Okay, I mean, more more research is, is definitely required in this, but it is it is interesting because this idea of seeing is believing yeah. um, is a very powerful concept. And I would have put money that uh, watching a video of a deep fake rather than reading it uh, would have made them remember this false narrative um, much more uh, much more readily. But um, very interesting work. Dr. Gillian Murphy from uh, the School of Applied Psychology in University College Cork. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I don't recommend Googling deepfakes and, uh, and and someone's name, by the way, because there's all sorts that will happen. Some of it, you know, just plain immoral sticking, you know, an, an innocent person's face on, on pornography and, and so on. But if you want to see some of the positive use cases of this technology in action, you can look at our Twitter page. It is absolutely su suitable for work. Um, 
It's twitter.com forward slash news talk science. All right, time to look at some of your comments from the past couple of weeks. I was away last week on holiday, so I'm catching up on a couple of episodes. Um, we were talking about weapons and uh, AI and using facial technology to um, recognize people and, and the dangers of that. Pat and Newbridge says, we have facial recognition technology that can identify white males to a large degree of accuracy, but is not great at identifying women and pretty much useless with people of color. We do not have good facial recognition technology. One of the many reasons we should be not using AI in weaponry, in my opinion, Pat. Um, another person uh, wanted to talk about uh, Fibonacci. So Leonardo Fibonacci is the man credited with introducing the world to this uh, sequence of numbers that we see all throughout nature. So the Fibonacci sequence um, is one, two, uh, three, five, eight. And it basically it goes up in a curve that if you see it in nature, um, you might see the, the seeds in a sunflower or the the coils in a, in a snail. This spiral is seen in maths and in nature um, all over the place. And someone said, how did Fibonacci discover the Fibonacci sequence? Well, um, r- rumor is it's not fully um, set in stone, but uh, apparently he traveled through um, through India and Asia in, in his time and noticed that there, the, the, the numerical texts that they had in some of these countries had already sort of um, touched on the Fibonacci sequence, but he wrote a paper that sort of was a, a, a guide to to mathematics for tradespeople. And this is a, a sort of seen as the seminal original text of really setting out the Fibonacci sequence. Um, we were also talking about the work that Dublin Zoo is doing in cryopreservation, um, taking samples of animals uh, from many different species and, and cryopreserving them so that uh, we will be able to reference them if they become extinct in the future, presumably. And someone says, what happens if there's a small gene pool? So obviously that's a problem. If you only have one or two members of uh, of a species, you know, th- there's a bottleneck there as to whether or not you'll get the genetic genetic diversity as they procreate um, to survive. It depends on the species, is my understanding. And um, having at least one or two DNA samples of, of species is, is obviously hugely beneficial. Having many from a particular species, all of them being genetically diverse, obviously is challenging when you talk about these animals that are already endangered. But we we talked on um, the uses of MDMA in therapy and we got a, a couple of big responses to it because um, it's, it's an emotional subject. Um, Catherine says, it always amazes me how people can so dispassionately discuss their own and others' use of street drugs purely in respect of their own experience and never mention the harm they colluded with and supported by contributing their money to the gangs that went on to cause so much misery to young people. Seems that they accept no responsibility for the uh, growth of this social cancer. Um, And I I think Catherine is right in a way that um, by buying illegal drugs you are contributing to the underworld in a way and of course in doing so you are legitimizing the the work of illegal gangs we know that cause a huge amount of of suffering i think you know most people take drugs when they're young that social conscience or that that adding up of things probably isn't there for most people i know for the the generation that i spoke about um in the piece it wasn't something that was even a narrative at the time, but um, uh, I think there's, you know, there's a good case there for for um, for 
the ethical consideration of where these drugs come from. Um, but we had another perspective um, that came in. Someone says, I'm a regular listener to the show and I love the format and Jonathan's open and inquisitive style. Thank you. Um, I especially appreciate the amount of coverage on climate change, which is hugely underreported in scientific terms elsewhere. But that's not why I'm writing. I was struck by your episode on MDMA therapy and wanted to share my own experience. I was part of the 90s generation that Jonathan described so well, perhaps a bit young for the basement raves, but you didn't have to go to basements to find the kind of scenes he described. Regular big name DJ nights and certain clubs like the Red Box or the Kitchen were awash in the mid-late 90s, early noughties. My first experience taking ecstasy was at the New Year's 94-95 Prodigy gig in Dublin. I think I was at that. I was a bit nervous but felt really well supported by everyone. Newbies always had someone to look after you. Typically randomers would step in and mind you anyway if needs be. In what was, certainly back then, a very special atmosphere of open empathy, love, euphoria. Very hard to describe it but it was as close to spiritual connection as I've ever had. Certainly with strangers, where egos were completely set aside and everyone wanted to make everyone else's experience as good as possible. I took half a tab that night and I'll never forget the utter sense of euphoria I felt when I came up. I had a few more nights in that period, but stepped back then to focus on studies. When I finished college, I had a second wave of taking ease in the noughties. There was a bit less of that innocence of the 90s then. Maybe I was just a bit older. And after peak in 2002, I pretty much stepped back from it. The quality of ecstasy had gone down significantly and the experience just wasn't the same. I also saw some friends get really dependent on what was being peddled as ecstasy at the time in uh, that, that they couldn't have a night out without taking a few or taking cocaine. And it felt like an era had come to an end by around 2004 and it was time for me to get serious with life. I'm just going to pause there for a second to say um, the, the, the scene changed very, very um, significantly uh, around about that time where it became a real glamorous thing to go nightclubbing and people used to get dressed up and, and really um, put on their best dresses and high heels and so on to go out clubbing. Whereas in the early 90s, it, that wasn't the case. People often went in a T-shirt and a tracksuit, comfortable clothes because they knew they were going to be dancing all night. And it wasn't really a glamorous thing to be part of. And that all changed. I mean, I think actually the red box um, and uh, w was quite significant in making a more glamorous night out. Um, uh, the pod as well made it a bit more elite and it lost that sense of um, wild and... Um, unpretentiousness, I, I think, uh, that, that it had at the time. So back to the, the, the comment. Um, this a writer who hasn't given their name says, I will say that in the second wave, I definitely look, definitely look forward to coming up. I would dance for hours as you do. And there would always be that period of an hour or so where you would get into what I would describe as a deep sense of flow. My life and its challenges would present in my mind in a way that was completely decoupled from any sense of anxiety or fear, and I could process the trials of life in a very lucid way. And having listened to the podcast, I believe I could well have been rewriting myself to a degree and saw the positive in challenges and could see the love and support I was getting from others in a way that my mind wouldn't allow when sober. I've had the very occasional experience since then, now that MDMA is getting produced again to alternative substances coming in line. And to be honest, I would love if there was an acceptance of MDMA in society for responsible usage. My wife has never taken any drug of any description and wouldn't understand the culture that was around in Dublin in the 90s. I've seen her struggle hugely with postnatal depression and anxiety. Eventually, on her third child, she opened up to treatment and has had a much better experience. And it opened her mind to realising therapy exists and can help. 
She still suffers from insomnia and anxiety, be it better managed, but I firmly believe that if she could have the type of lucid reflection on life that I've had, she would gain a perspective that would be otherwise unreachable. Just wanted to share, and I'm sure there are many others like me who have had professional careers and families, yet understand fundamentally the positive experiences that MDMA, when used correctly, can bring. Keep flying the flag for science. Well, look, thanks very much for that email. A couple of things, as we mentioned from Catherine, you know, MDMA is an illegal drug. We don't know what is in ecstasy these days. And there is danger, although mathematically a low danger compared to other drugs like alcohol. There is a danger that people could react badly. uh, They could have an episode, a seizure. And that's a huge problem in and of itself. And then, as I said, Catherine's argument that you are supporting illegal drug gangs who cause a huge amount of uh, misery Uh, particularly with their other drugs, so heroin, crack and so on, um, that uh, that often travel through the same route. um, By supporting that industry, you are, I suppose, in some way contributing to that. So, I mean, if MDMA was sold as a a, a legal and controlled substance where um, where it was safe for people to take and people knew the risks that they were taking, then that would be a different scenario. But I think that's a pipe dream. That will never happen, sadly. And the closest we'll get is testing ecstasy in nightclubs. Um, But I I, I think, you know, there's also the point that some people have good experiences on ecstasy and some people have bad. And the the science isn't there to suggest that it's good for all all sorts of um, anxiety and, and depression. Um, we've only seen evidence that we can count on in a small number of studies just yet. So the, we do need to understand that drug a bit more and its effect on the mind. Um, but thank you so much for your email and, and telling us your story. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keynes, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.